Today, I want to introduce to you how to become a Christian. You may say, well, I'm already a Christian. But, but for those of us that are already, a Christian, already Christians, I believe this, this can serve as a tune-up, a checkup, so to speak, on these aspects of our Christian walk. Are we, are we mindful of these things that are happening in our Christian walk? And I would say even for some that, that call themselves Christians, this might convict us that, that we've never taken that full step with Jesus. As a person in my small group just this week said, sitting in a pew does not equal the Christian life. Sitting in a pew does not equal the Christian life. To be alive in Christ is about our minds, our hearts, our lives, and the grace of Jesus. And we find all four of these elements emphasized at the conclusion of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 40. Uh, this sermon at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 is the first of 28 speeches. One-third of the book of Acts are, are sermons and speeches. And, and this is the first one. And right at the conclusion of it are four things, mind, heart, grace, and life that I want us to look at. If you have a Bible with you and you want to open it to the book of Acts, chapter 2, I'm beginning in verse 36. In the last four verses of Peter's message, we find this. In verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter, that was who was preaching, and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves or as the Greek would more accurately translate it, allow yourselves to be saved from this corrupt generation. Four things. The mind, the heart, the life, and the grace of Jesus. We're not going to necessarily go in that order, but we are going to start with the mind. The first process, the first thing that engages in this relationship with Christ is the mind. Peter's sermon started with the mind. We are notified of this by his words in verse 36. What did it say? It said, therefore, let all Israel be assured. How are they assured? Because if you go back and read the sermon, and I would encourage you to do that at some point, he had just finished engaging the mind of this crowd. The crowd that he is speaking to are individuals that possessed knowledge of the Scriptures. We know this by looking at Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. Acts chapter 2 and verse 5 says this. It says, Now there, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. These Jewish individuals in Jerusalem or were in Jerusalem for the Jewish holy days. They were individuals that knew the Holy Scriptures. 
which consisted of what we refer to now as the Old Testament. They not only knew these passages, but, but, but they understood or they, they knew them to such a degree that, that when they were referenced, they knew what Peter was speaking of. They were God-fearing Jews, which also means that, that these Old Testament scriptures, again, what we call the Old Testament, were the authority in their lives. And so in his sermon, Peter quoted, quotes 1 Joel chapter 2. When they ask, what is, what is taking place here? And Peter says, what you are seeing of us all speaking to you in your own languages is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Then Peter quotes Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Peter is, is not just saying, here's what I know. He's saying, here's what you know, but let me help you understand it in its true meaning. Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 were psalms that were written by King David. And they were prophecies about Jesus. And, and he's now helping these Jews through their intellect, through their minds, understand what they had been taught their whole lives. The scriptures that they had read their whole lives, the scriptures with the language which had been implanted into their mind, Peter was now reframing it and helping them understand it in the context of Jesus. Christianity begins with thought. Y'all, the journey to Jesus involves thinking. Christianity is not only a feeling religion. It is a thinking religion. Christianity wants you to think. It calls you to think. In the book of 2 Timothy, we are told, Paul wrote, study to show thyself approved unto God. In other words, gain knowledge, learn things to grow in your relationship with God. So that, he said, you need not be ashamed because you can rightly divide and understand the word of truth. He doesn't say, make sure all your feelings feel just such. No, he says, study, understand, hear me. There is a place for emotions. In fact, we're going to come to that place in just a minute. But our emotions should be led by the conviction that comes through Scripture. Our emotions should be led by, by, by the fact that our minds have been engaged with the truth of God's Word. Ellen White wrote that such a way of preaching, such a way of approaching truth, is how the Reformers and William Miller did so. She wrote in the book Great Controversy, William Miller's work, like that of early reformers, tended rather to convince the understanding and arouse the conscience than merely to excite the emotions. We can be way too full of head knowledge with no heart. That's not what I'm saying here. But, but our heart should follow the conviction, the, the understanding, the clear picture of truth. How many of us have left a sermon and gone home and said, you know, that sermon really didn't speak to me. Or I didn't get much out of that sermon. And, and, and then our reasons why are this. The sermon was boring. The sermon wasn't funny. The sermon, the pastor went too long. The pastor didn't tell enough stories. 
None of those have to do with engaging our mind. They're all about engaging our emotions. We need both for sure, but, but, but how many times have we built most of our Christianity just on our emotions? Christianity begins with thinking. Begins with thinking. And, and what, what does Christianity call us to think most upon? To, to ponder most. That is the second component of Peter's sermon and, and what we would maybe say is the process of growing in our relationship with Christ, and that is grace. Now, grace is not a secondary step to knowledge by any means. In fact, God's grace always precedes our intellect, and even it is God's grace that, that gives us the intellect that we have to understand His truth. But our, intellects, our intellect helps us to understand grace. There's a great statement in the book Desire of Ages in which we are encouraged to spend a thoughtful hour pondering the final week, the last hours of Christ's life, to pondering, to thinking on these things. We're called to ponder the acts of God's grace, the, the power of Jesus' work on our behalf. And so our mind engages. Peter engages their mind. He says, let you be assured of this. I'm showing you this is Jesus. And then he calls them to understand the grace act of Jesus. In verse 36, he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then in verse 39, he says, The promise, what? The promise of forgiveness is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. In the immediate context of the audience that Peter was speaking to, what a statement of grace this is. Peter directly tells them, you killed Jesus. These were Jews in Jerusalem who at the very least were aware of the things that have just happened three weeks earlier or a few weeks earlier with the death of Jesus. But some there had likely even been actively involved in calling for Jesus' death. In a book entitled The Acts of the Apostles, named after this book of the Bible, we find this statement. Some of those who listened to the apostles had taken an active part in the condemnation and death of Christ. Their voices had mingled with the rabble in calling for His crucifixion. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They had cried. And then they said, let His blood be on us and on our children. Jesus, or Peter, when he says to them, you crucified Jesus. You killed him. In many ways, with these people, he's speaking very literally. In a very tangible way. But then he tells them, this happened so that he become your Messiah and your Lord. That forgiveness could be yours. Through their act of, of wickedness, God provided grace. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, now willing to be your Lord and Messiah. Their bad action led to Jesus' grace action. Our natural actions, our natural bad actions are sin, and they move us away from God and His, and His Son, Jesus Christ. But, but, 
But the actions of Jesus, the actions of God, draw us back in. That is grace. They move us towards God. Peter said to them, this Jesus you killed, if he were here today, he could say that same thing to us. We also killed Jesus. You and me. Isaiah chapter 53. The book of Isaiah chapter 53, there's a great prophecy of Jesus and it helps us to understand our role, our role in the crucifixion of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 5, it says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid upon him. The Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity, the sin, the bad choices, the mistakes, the bad thoughts, the angry feelings, the sin of us all. That is what killed Jesus. And you and I are a part of that. That little bad habit that I still hold on to, that you still hold on to, that killed Jesus. That, that gossip that we spoke this week, that flippant comment that we made to someone, that killed Jesus. That lust that we hold in our hearts, that anger that we won't let go of, that, that blame that we cast upon others, that killed Jesus. That fight we had before we turned on church this morning, that impatient moment with our kids, that killed Jesus. You and me, we killed him. And he chose to say back to us, I have a promise for you. Forgiveness and love. God wants to engage our minds so that we study, that we understand more deeply the power of that truth. You killed me, but I love you and I will save you. You killed me. Let me promise you forgiveness. Some of us won't forgive the person who sits close to us in church. Some of us won't forgive someone who lives in our own house. Some of us won't forgive that person who is our friend on Facebook, our, our former friend on Facebook, or, or our political opposite. We won't forgive them either. But Jesus, he forgives you, he forgives me, even though we killed him. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That is grace. We did the crime. Jesus took the punishment. Our minds are engaged and we're understanding the grace of Jesus. And, and it is through that moment that then the emotions check in. And that leads to that third step in the process. The, the conviction of the heart. The emotions, the heart. Hear this. You will not be a Christian if only your mind is engaged. You will not be a Christian if only your mind is, is changed. Even if you grasp in an intellectual way 
the gospel. If you grasp in an intellectual way that you are saved by grace, many people that grew up in church could say, I understand that I'm saved by grace through faith, but it has had no impact on their heart. You have to be cut to the heart. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and look what it says in verse 37. The, the people listening to, to Peter's sermon, their minds have been engaged. Peter has reframed this picture and he says, the one that you killed is the one that David was speaking about in Psalm 16, in Psalm, or in Psalm 10 and Psalm 116. The, this is the Messiah, Jesus. Or Psalm 16, sorry, in Psalm 110. This is the Messiah. He reframes that for them. And, and then he says, you killed this man, but he offers you a promise. Their, 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 their hearts are beginning to be convicted. They're, as they understand that Jesus is the Messiah, suddenly their hearts are, are touched. And in verse 37 it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. What does it mean to be cut to the heart? As Tim Keller said, it means it's when your sin become, moves from, becomes personal and not an abstraction. When your sin becomes personal and not an abstraction. Have you had one of those moments in your life? I've had some in my life. I'll tell you about one that I think played a role in me coming to the Spencerville church. And it came through the voice of my five-year-old son. Christine and I, the summer before we moved here to Spencerville, I was in Wisconsin speaking for a camp meeting. And I decided to take the entire family with me to this camp meeting because one of my best friends, Greg, was the youth director of that conference. And so we thought, well, we'll go and in between the times when I'm speaking, we'll, we'll spend time with Greg and his family. And while we were there at camp meeting, it became abundantly clear that, that Greg's family was different than our family. And in one particular way, I noticed it. Greg was continually engaged with his sons. They were a part of everything that he was doing and they were a part of everything that, or he was a part of everything they were doing and he was a, they were a part of everything he was doing. But, but something else I noticed is that, is that Greg was being the same way with my sons. They want to shoot hoops? Sure, we'll shoot hoops. You want to go ride on this, this vehicle that we have around the camp? Go, sure, we'll go ride on that vehicle. You want to do this? You want to do that? And, and at some point in time there, Dayton said to me, and he wasn't, he was just five. He wasn't trying to be mean, but Dayton said to me some words that cut to my heart. He said, Dad, Uncle Greg is a better dad than you. He isn't too busy. He isn't too busy. Talk about being cut to the heart. My life in California at that time was out of control for over two years because we were planting a church and doing other things. I was preaching three times a Sabbath and, and doing outreach activities between 
the services. I had meetings Monday through Thursday and often on Friday nights and Saturday nights we had other ministry activities. By Sunday, which was all I made room for in my family, the last thing I wanted to do was help around the house. Last thing I wanted to do was sit on the floor and play with kids and, and toddlers or do much of anything else really. I remember I'd, I'd, I'd pack up my kids in the car and haul them out to my grandma's house and I would tell them to go outside and play on the farm while I rested watching sports. And, on, and Dayton on that day in Wisconsin in his perceptive five-year-old way showed me how much my sinful living was hurting him. And I was cut to the heart. And when you're cut to the heart, that is when you know you understand sin is not just an abstract thing, but it is something that wounds. It wounds those we love on this earth. But folks, it wounds the heart of Jesus as well. And it is in those moments when we are cut to the heart that we become more open to change. That's why I say I think that moment played a part in me coming to Spencerville because Spencerville had already reached out to us and told us they wanted us to come out to, to Maryland to visit the place here. We weren't sure that we wanted to consider or, or how seriously we would consider it. But in that moment, when my five-year-old spoke those words, Daddy, Uncle Greg is a better dad than you. He's not too busy. I knew something had to change in my life. And when we're cut to the heart, we realize something has to change. The text in verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And here's what they said to Peter and the other apostles. Brothers, what shall we do? They were ready for life change. And Peter replied to them in this way, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And with many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves. Or again, as I would prefer the Greek, the original Greek, allow yourselves to be saved from this corrupt generation. What must we do? was their question. And Peter responds, your life has to change. If, if you've been a follower of Jesus and your mind has been engaged and you've understood things intellectually, including even the grace of Jesus, but you've never been cut to the heart, you've never been open to saying, God, change whatever you need to change in me. Change whatever you need to change in my life. I would ask you, have you truly repented? Because repentance is not about saying sorry. Repentance is life change. Being baptized is not simply about getting in the water. Being baptized is about choosing to leave one community, the community of the world, and joining the community, the body of Christ. Repentance means to be different, to turn away from or around from. That is life change, y'all. I left that camp meeting open to life change because my heart had been cut. My sin was hurting my family, my wife, my sons. 
Peter tells them to repent. He's not saying say sorry. He's saying change. Turn away from. And then he calls them to be baptized. Baptism is the public expression of your commitment to Jesus. Too many people get baptized and they never show up again. Too many people, too many places affirm that type of baptism. But, but baptism is when we are baptized, we are making ourselves accountable to the community of faith. We are in fact entering into a new community. You can't be a Christian apart from a community. What we call the church oftentimes. But, but, but please hear me. I don't mean just coming and sitting in the pews. Again, there's no more life by sitting in the pews than there is by not sitting in the pews. The life comes through through the engagement with the community, the accountability. That's why we've started our small groups. As a great Baptist preacher of yesteryear, John Stott wrote, an unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. The church is God's new community. Peter says, repent, be baptized, and allow yourselves to be saved from this corrupt generation. Allow yourselves to be saved from this corrupt community and join the new community, the body of Christ. This is the process of the Christian faith and it's all right here at the end of Peter's sermon. It's all actually within Peter's sermon because his appeal to the mind is within that. Be assured. How can we be assured? By, by understanding the Word of God. Our, our minds are enlightened. Our minds are open to the truth of God's Word. And as we are open to the truth of God's Word and we begin to understand it, then He uses those truths of Scripture. He uses the things of this life to then cut us to the heart. To help us to understand the grace of Jesus and that we are part, in part responsible for killing Jesus. My sins, your sins, my impatience, your impatience, my uh, laziness, your laziness, my greed, your greed, my lust, your lust. These things, they kill Jesus. And Jesus says to us, You killed me. Now let me give you a promise of forgiveness, of eternal life. And we say, Jesus, what must we do to receive this? And he says, let me change your life. Be all mine and nothing else. Be all mine and nothing else. Brothers and sisters, if you've never made a decision for Jesus, I would pray that, that you would understand this, that you would say, okay, I want to know those words of Scripture. I want, to, I want to understand the love that Jesus has for me. Not just at an emotional level, but as a, at a mental level that, that, my, that my heart may follow the conviction of the truth of God's Word. If, you, if you've been a Christian all your life, by name, by function, by habit, but you never said, Jesus, you can do anything you want in my life. I'm all yours. I repent. Change me. 
then I call all of us to make a decision today to allow Jesus to cut to the heart of who we are and that we may truly experience the power of being rescued by Jesus from this corrupt world, from the sins of our past, from the sins of our present, from the sinful future that Satan wants to devour us in. If you've never made that decision, please do so now. If you made that decision but you need to do so again, do so now and write me, tell me, let me know. Let us know. C. Stewart at SpencervilleChurch.org. Write me. Let us walk with you. If you live far away, let us connect with you there and we'll connect you to a pastor close by that can walk with you. Don't let this moment go by. We killed Jesus. It is the truth of Scripture. But He gives us grace. Sin did not, is not a mistake, a casual mistake. It is the murder weapon against our Savior. And He says, for this weapon, I give you my hand of love. Now give me your life and enjoy the joy of my salvation. Choose that today. Lord Jesus, what must we do? What change do you need to make in me? What change do you need to make in my brothers and sisters? What change do you need to make in us corporately? Do that, Jesus. Cut us to the heart and change us. Save us. In your name I pray. Amen.